Hello, and welcome to The Scriptures Are Real. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have made them become more real to us because we believe we can draw more power out of them when that happens, and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so excited to have back with me uh, someone that we had with us last year to talk about uh, Elijah and his uh, experience with uh, the the still small voice and, and so on, that uh, First Kings story. Uh, we have with us Kim Matheson, who's a, a good friend of mine, was a, a student of mine many years ago. I guess that shows how old I am. Uh, has done uh, some work uh, at both Harvard and Denver uh, and uh, is now working at the Neil A. Max Institute for uh, Religious Scholarship, I think is the full name, uh, at BYU. And so we're just thrilled to have you with us, Kim. Thanks and welcome back. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. What else should we know about you? Uh, it might be helpful to know where or and in what I got my PhD training. So I think it um, would, especially for today's conversation. So yeah. 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 I um, just this past summer graduated with a PhD in theology from Loyola University in Chicago. Um, and my dissertation actually was on prayer. And that's going to be relevant to, to what has been very real for me for many years in the Sermon on the Mount. So was I wrong when I said Denver? You were at Denver too, or am I wrong? I don't remember any times in Denver. <laughs> okay. So scratch that from the record. Chicago. That's right. Chicago. All right. We don't even need to scratch it from the record. It's good for my audience to know that I just have a bad memory sometime. I don't know how I got <laughs> Denver stuck in my head. But anyway, yeah, the, uh, Chicago. That's right. As soon as you said that, I knew that. And then I was like, wait, I was wrong on that. Uh, but uh, yeah, and that's uh, precisely uh, just gives rise to some of the things we want to talk about today. So... Yeah. Uh, we're this week starting in on the second couple chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. We did Matthew five last week, but uh, this week we'll we'll do six and seven, I believe. And uh, there's some things in there that have really become real and and powerful to you. So why don't you walk us through some of that, Kim? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I thought I would talk about today was the Lord's Prayer, but just a little bit of background in how I came to love this prayer and also how I came to write a whole dissertation on the topic of prayer. Um. I can't think of the the first exact moment where this happened to me, but there's kind of um, I, I I came to uh, to love this prayer by sitting in in church services from other Christian traditions. So when I was growing up, somehow as a young kid, I got the impression that the Lord's Prayer um, was a lovely pattern that Jesus had given us for how to pray. Um, but to be very careful not to repeat it vainly like those other Christians do. Um, I don't know which primary teacher I want to put on the hook for this. I can't remember, but I got the impression <laughs> that Latter-day Saints, Latter-day Saints don't use set prayers. We don't recite prayers verbatim, um, and that's an incorrect use of the Lord's Prayer. Now, on the one hand, that's well, factually inaccurate. Of course, we have set prayers. The sacrament prayers are set prayers, so we do believe in the power of repeating verbatim certain words in ritual settings, but of course we don't use the Lord's prayer that way. And so I had never prayed the Lord's prayer personally as a Christian. And then when I was in graduate school, um, because it was important to me to keep my devotional and spiritual life active through the rigors of graduate training, um, I started going to an interfaith ecumenical worship service that, that ran um, every morning uh, before I would go for classes in my master's program. and we would there there would be prayers there readings of the psalms and so on and this this grew in me a love of just worshiping with other other christians 
or especially around Easter and Christmas, I have come to really love sitting through the mass. And I remember. Um, and maybe I'll these, just add, uh, just, I'm thinking some of our, uh, audience may say, okay, what, why would you do that? And so on. And I'll just say, I've had a similar experience when I was a visiting fellow at Oxford uh, and I would do my own morning scripture study and prayers mm-hmm. and so on. But I also wanted just a little bit more each day. And so I went to uh model in college uh, and they had every morning, uh, a, a, as you said, we'd sing a song, read some Psalms and, uh, and something from the new Testament and have a prayer. And it was usually just the pastor, one other uh, a, a graduate student, and me. Uh, most of the time, mm-hmm. but it was a fantastic, uplifting, edifying way to start the day. I, I grew to love it, and it it and improved my own scripture study. So, uh, I, I I hope uh, others will take what you're saying seriously, not as an, uh, something that's why would they do that, but as uh, something they can mm-hmm. learn from. So, sorry, keep keep going. No, thank you. Yeah, I, I just to echo what you said, absolutely, it has enriched my own scripture study, my own private devotional life, but also it's made me much more adept at talking with other Christians. Yeah. I can kind of speak their language, and that's really helpful, especially for people who feel like Latter-day Saints are foreign and not Christian, and we can't speak the same language. Um, it's made me more able to better represent the gospel to them and to share what we have in common. Um, at some point in this kind of this this practice that I took up in addition to my own private studies during graduate school, I remember um, attending a mass. I don't remember if it was an Episcopal mass or a Catholic mass, but I was sitting in in a church and we got to the part of the liturgy where the congregation kneels and recites the Lord's Prayer together. And I thought, aha, yes, this thing that I've heard of since my childhood, this is the part where we recite the Lord's Prayer. Um, What I was unprepared for was how deeply moving it would be for me because what I felt happen through these very familiar words is I felt it did not feel um, it did not feel empty or devoid of heart because I genuinely meant these words as I said them. And in fact, rather than being an empty expression of something, I guess let's put it this way. Often we think of prayer as um, an expression of things we are already feeling. Mm-hmm. And much of my own personal prayer life is that. This was the first time that I had experienced the opposite, where saying a prayer could invoke certain feelings in me. Mm. So I felt the way that this prayer, just by reciting it, gave structure to my own spiritual impulses in that moment. So when I prayed, forgive us our debts, I felt, oh, yes, I have things for which I need to be forgiven. And when I prayed, for, as we forgive those who trespass against us, forgive as we forgive you know, those who are indebted to us, I was reminded, oh, yes. I need to be forgiving toward others as well. I just step by step through this prayer, saying it gave form and structure to my own spiritual feelings in the moment. And I had never experienced that in prayer before. And then having experienced that, I have come to really love this prayer. And that set me on um, kind of years of intense study of this prayer. Um, And then eventually a dissertation on the topic of prayer, not this prayer in particular, but just praying in general. so is that enough segue? Should I get into the yeah. text? Yeah, let's get into the text and and uh, we want to learn about prayer. Yeah. So um, the, the Lord's Prayer, I think, well, I'm going to make kind of a bold claim if I can, um, and if your audience will hang with me. Um, and the, the claim is this. I think personally that the Lord's Prayer is absolutely central to the Sermon on the Mount. I think it is kind of the key to this sermon. 
And I think that um, not just because I love it, but also because structurally it is placed almost dead center in the sermon. Um, I haven't done like strict word counts in the Greek, but in the English, there are something like, I have the exact number somewhere. There are 56 verses before you start the Lord's Prayer and 48 verses after. Right. I should do word And, and you'd have to do the word count in Aramaic yeah. anyway. Even in Greek wouldn't right? happen. And we don't <laughs> have exactly what he said in Aramaic. So I, I think a rough guess is as good as we're going to get. Yep. But rough estimate wise, this is at the center. Um, and it's also interestingly placed because of what surrounds it. On both sides of this prayer, Jesus talks a lot about um, what I'll call kind of a bit wordy, but I'll explain it. Logics of reciprocation. So this is the portion of the sermon where he's talking about what the hypocrites do, people who love glory, people who stand in the streets and pray very visibly, people who give alms in a way that gets a lot of attention. And then uh, on the other end of the prayer in Matthew 6, then he talks about those who fast in a way that makes sure people know how much they're suffering and how pious they are. Um, on either side of this prayer, we have warnings against being reciprocal or trying to perform righteousness for the sake of earning glory and attention back. Um, and I'm going to expand out one further level. So I've given you the Lord's prayers in the center. We have this reciprocation business on either side. And actually, if you back up even further to the very end of Matthew 5, which was last week, but I'll bring it in here, Jesus talks there about kind of retaliatory violence. Mm. He says, you're not going to, we're not going to do this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth business anymore. If someone hits you on the cheek, you don't go and give them a punch back. You, you turn your cheek. You just kind of, you, you're going to try and interrupt all of these retaliatory cycles. Right. Um, and the, and, and so as I've studied this prayer, part of my question has been why, not only why is the Lord's prayer in the center of this sermon writ large, why is it in the center of these bits, all this stuff about interrupting retaliation and cycles of glory and trying to earn praise and rich, get things back get things back in exchange for our righteousness. Why would the prayer be set here? Um, and so over the past couple of years, I've come to read the Lord's Prayer as kind of a mechanism for helping us do what the Lord commands in these passages. In other words, if he tells us that we should not try to earn praise and glory with our piety, we should not be violent in exchange to others, I think the Lord's Prayer is the how for doing that. And for me, um, I, I mean, we could talk about every line even, and, um, and maybe we will. So I guess let's start then with the very first line, if, if, if you're willing. Um, sure. The very are, are we in Matthew, uh, Matthew, uh, six. Which? Matthew 6? Okay, so Matthew there six, are a couple verse versions of this, but yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's do the Matthew version. It's, it's traditional. Um, the Lord opens the prayer in verse nine by saying, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And um, I want to start here, I guess, with an image. The way that I think about this line has to do with um, like a pile of, of iron filings. Did you ever play around with these when you were a kid? You had a magnet and a bunch of little pieces of iron oh, yeah. and you played with the magnetic field. I did a whole science fair project on this in middle school. So it's very vivid in my head. Um, but if you introduce a magnet to a pile of iron filings, 
all of those filings get oriented to the magnetic field that you've just produced with the magnet. They line up according to the thing that's orienting them. And in this sermon so far, Jesus has just taught us what it looks like when we orient around things like violence or praise or public acclaim. There are different things that we could orient around. And those that he calls hypocrites are people who orient around siphoning off praise and getting that back for themselves. Um, but when Jesus begins this prayer by saying, our father, which art in heaven, I like to think of him almost introducing a different magnet. He takes the equation and introduces God into it. I, I almost think of prayer as an opportunity to change our magnetic field, almost. Hmm. Something that will, uh, he introduces a new magnet that will pull us out of these reactionary lines of behavior. So if you're gonna if you're gonna be the kind of person who insists on trading an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth or praying very grandly in public, um, those are the kinds of things that we do when we're oriented to our own success or our own comfort or our own public image. But in prayer, Jesus is showing us how to perform a different orientation. He opens this prayer by orienting to heaven rather than earth by orienting toward God rather than, than other people. And so I think prayer is something like the practice of reconfiguring the magnetic field of our life. And I think it's interesting that he then says, hallowed be thy name, full stop. It's a one-way direction of praise. He does not, there, there's nothing reciprocal about right. the moment. And so praise us too, say, or something like exactly. that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, nothing that says, and hallowed be the name of thy people. No, yeah. this is a prayer in which glory runs in only one direction. It runs to God. Um, for the people that Jesus is criticizing, critical of elsewhere in this sermon, for them, giving glory to God was a way of attracting glory to themselves. Yeah. They're trying for to other people to off. notice them, right? Yeah, they want to yeah. siphon off some of that glorification to their own benefit. Um, but Jesus teaches here that praying rightly runs in one direction. We're not going to do anything reciprocal. Um, prayer is when you practice letting that glory run through you to God. So to get that really practical, that means prayer is where we practice the very same thing that hopefully makes us good, um, good Relief Society teachers and good speakers in sacrament meeting. The, the, point of, the point of giving a sacrament meeting talk or a Relief Society lesson is not to look smart or witty. Yeah. The, the point is to uplift your ward members and encourage discipleship and invite the spirit and give glory to God. Um, there is only one name that we should be hallowing in everything we do. And it's, it isn't our own. And so I find it striking then that prayer seems to be a, a way, a place, excuse me, a place where you practice that every day over meals. When you get up in the morning at bedtime, this is the pattern that Jesus gives. And and maybe I can just interject here, and and I won't go as far with this as I as I think we'll go in a little while because I don't want to jump ahead of the game. But sure. um, I'll just say for those who listened to the episode last week on uh, where we went through the Beatitudes and so on, you'll you'll see that I see in in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in the Beatitudes, I think it runs throughout this interplay on uh, covenantal obligations, or we might call it great commandments, right? And it always starts with loving God. That's that's the beginning place all the time. And as you said, it's it's this pulling us out of our society is so incredibly individualistic, so self-centered, 
and that's where our focus, the fallen man focus always goes there. And God is always, or and God and Christ are both always going to try and pull us out and have us first and foremost focus on that relationship with God, loving God, worshiping God, praising God, connecting with God, making him the focus. And I, I, so I think that's part of what you're saying here is that's the beginning point, focusing that way rather than and then in all these self-focused things that you've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautifully said. Thank you. Um, I guess the next phrase in the prayer is, thy kingdom come. And here again, I'm I'm struck by the way that it's it's unilateral. This runs in one direction only. Whereas again, all the things that Jesus is criticizing, they run in two directions. They've got these kind of yeah. kind of circle structure where something happens to you, you do it to the other person, or you perform your piety so that people give you praise back. But Jesus cuts through that. Everything that happens in the Lord's prayer seems to run in a single direction. And here's another instance: Thy kingdom come, and Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So in both of these instances, something is running from heaven to earth, one direction only, God's will and God's kingdom. And the goal in prayer is where we orient ourselves to those things and let them flow in one direction into our life. Um, again, Jesus Jesus isn't concerned with anything reciprocal here. He doesn't, he doesn't say, for instance, thy will be done on earth and let our will be done in heaven. He's right. not concerned with that one direction only. Um, and, and I think then in verse 11, we get a glimpse of, of what happens in our lives when we learn to pray this way. Um, because verse 11 tells us how, how different, how, how regular objects in the world are going to begin to show up differently. So this is the line about daily bread. Give us this day, our daily bread. And I love, I love the, the idea of making bread something daily. So let me explain this. Um, we all have a lot of experience with bread. It is about as basic as food gets. You probably have some in your house right now. It might be in your freezer. I think I've got four loaves in my freezer, plus the one that my kids have half eaten and it's going stale in the cupboard. Yeah. Maybe you're lucky enough to have, I don't know, fresh homemade sourdough. People did that a lot during the pandemic. We've all got bread somewhere in our house. Um, and as and, and you have a very good sense of where that bread comes from. You got it from the grocery store last Saturday. You baked it yesterday. Um, maybe it's got a ton of preservatives, and so actually it's from a grocery run two weeks ago or something. Um, our bread, typically, just like the rest of our food and our house and our clothes, it didn't just show up today. It comes at the end of a long chain of effort and work and time. But when Jesus calls bread daily bread, I wonder if he is encouraging us to think of it in a more spontaneous way. I like to think of daily bread as something that is, again, outside any logic of reciprocation. It's bread that you treat as a daily gift, a sign of God's daily care. It's bread viewed as if it just showed up today. And in that way, you are learning to see bread no longer as defined by an economic cycle of exchange. You view it as a gift rather than a commodity. So for instance, when I get down on my knees in the morning and say, thank you for this day, I'm changing my relationship to the rising of the sun. I'm a good, modern, well-educated person. I went through public school. I know that the sun is gonna rise tomorrow and set tomorrow. And I have a lot of sunrises and sunsets and days ahead of me. 
that when I thank God for this day, I am treating it as a gift that he gave me today because he did. And I think the same thing happens when I pray over my, my food at dinner time. I know where that food came from. I made it. I went to work. I made money. I went to the grocery store. I bought it. I chopped the vegetables. I cooked them. This food, it's very easy to feel like it's a routine thing. It's, it's the result of my own labor. But in prayer, I take that object and I change my relationship to it. And I treat it as a gift from God that showed up today. So I think, I think part of the work of prayer is seeing if we can do this with every object and person around us. So can you do it with your house and your clothes and your health and your family? Can I wake up every day and see the same old four walls and a roof and yet relate to it as if it, as if God gave me this house today? I have a daily house and a daily bread and so on and so forth. That's, that's really good. Maybe I can ask you a question to see if we can reconcile that and and some other ideas that uh, we often talk about and uh, that I've even uh, a couple of uh, episodes I've done have been on. Here's the reality of life. This is how you get food and so on. Right. And one of the things we often focus on is the process. Bread is a staple of life for them as well. And in the Savior's Day. And you have this process where typically most days someone's going to grind some of the wheat, you get some of the fermented bread you already have and mix it in with the dough you're making so that it will ferment and rise for a while. Then you bake it, right? So it is, a, a, as you said, it's a, a, when you say daily bread, there is something about the the routine of it. Uh, this is how they go through. This is how they get it. But I like what you're saying. I think that, that we can reconcile. I mean, that's that's real, right? That that's it. There were yeah. women who spent significant hours every day to make it so that they could eat that bread that night. Um, and and I say women, I'm talking about the Savior's Day. It was typically women in his day. I'm not talking about our day. So, yeah. um, so, but I think what you're saying, and this is, I think, fantastic and a, and a great way. I, I haven't added this layer on that you're adding uh, for me. Yes, they work for it, but they should still see, because you know what? There were some people who that day probably didn't figure out how to get bread. Um, this is something that they should see despite whatever efforts they had or whatever, they should see this as a gift from God that they have the ability to one more day, have some bread. Is that kind of what you're saying? And is that a way that we can reconcile these things together? I I think so. I like that a lot. Absolutely. This actually gets at the heart of the way that I think about prayer. Um, and, and when I, when I do academic work on prayer, like this is the heart of it for me. I think prayer is a place where we and use fancy language, and then I'll try and say it in normal English. Prayer is where we reorient ourselves around the potential that accrues to people and objects. Mm. So we get very accustomed to seeing things, just kind of, we get very accustomed to our perspective and things being very well-defined. And so it's very easy to see bread as just the result of our labor. That labor is real. It is there. But bread is never just that. It is also the thing that God gives us. It is also um, a potential gift that we take to our neighbor when we do our ministering. Um, It is also potentially a sacrament emblem. It is also potentially a symbol for um, the bread of life, the Lord, um, and the work that he does in our lives. There is so much more that bread is than just a machine sliced loaf in my cupboard that I bought with the money I make in this capitalist system. And I think so much of our lives is like that. We get very locked down into our ideas of what things are and what defines them. And prayer is is the tool and mechanism that God has given us to open us up to more possibilities because that's how God works in our life. Um, 
if I can use a, a really uh, very strongly Latter-day Saint example, um, Joseph Smith, for instance, got very accustomed to the set of trees that existed in the backyard behind his farm. Mm. He saw them daily, maybe when they went there to get firewood, like he knows what trees are. He knows what farmland is. He works it every day. But in his prayer, that that grove became something very different. God, God can jump into any grove of trees and bring forth a revelation. But we get so accustomed to this kind of locked down, very narrow idea of what things are, that sometimes I think we forget to look for what God could be doing, for the, the amount of potential that God actually has to work with. I know that, for instance, I, I minister differently, I teach differently, I live differently when I remember that at any moment, God could break in and work a miracle right here. But often we're tempted to crowd out those possibilities just because we get into our routines. And for me, I understand prayer as, as a commandment to hit pause on those routines and reorient yourself to the potential that God can give. Mm -hmm. So back to the example of daily bread, I don't mean at all to downplay the labor. I did work hard to make the money to buy that right. bread that my kids are letting go stale in the cupboard. Right. But also God gave it to me. And it's important that I hit pause on my memory of my routines and my work in the grocery shopping to remember that this is also a sign of gift. And I think that's what we're doing in prayer over and over. Uh, very good. That would sure help us avoid uh, a lot of the kind of pride cycles that we hear about and so on, right? If we quit focusing on we got this and remember what God made possible. Yeah. That's very good. Oh, yeah. I like that reorienting idea. That's very powerful. Yeah, and I'll say more about it in a minute. Um, I want to say just a couple other things about the 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 end of this prayer, um, which is the next line, verse Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I've, I've spent a lot of time here saying that this prayer, there's nothing reciprocal in it. And verse 12 might give us pause. It might sound like we pay forgiveness, we, we forgive other people, and then we earn forgiveness from God in exchange. But I think here too, we can and should read this as a one directional thing. We receive forgiveness from God and our job then is just to pass it on so that the forgiveness keeps flowing in that arrow. God sends forgiveness to us, and our job is to just not gum up the works, not get in the way, and just let that forgiveness keep keep going. Um, there's a quote I love from a philosopher who says that we we misunderstand forgiveness if, if he ties it to the, this, this question the disciples ask the Savior, how many times do I have to forgive? Yeah. Seven times, that seems generous, and Jesus says no. 490 times. Um, yeah. I think that's the number, right? 490, yeah, yeah. 70 times seven. So, yeah. 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 Um, and the point, the point there clearly is not, Jesus is not actually wanting us to count out 470 times of forgiveness. What Jesus is saying, he's using a superlative to say, I have canceled the whole, the whole economy of vengeance and keeping tallies and keeping track. Forgiveness is canceling that logic of debt. Yeah. And, um, and so I think there's something like this happening here in verse 12. Our job is to let God cancel our debts by canceling the whole logic of debt so that we can live in mercy and grace and keep extending it to others as well. Wonderful. So, and maybe I can interject something again. I, uh, Please. 
I, I, maybe I have too much on my covenant lenses. I can't see anything without seeing it there. But uh, if we're going to, uh, I've been, I'm working on another article about uh, this idea of chesed or uh, uh, the the mercy that and forgiveness that God extends to people in a covenant relationship with him. And what that, I mean, I see this, but tons of others before me have seen and written about this is that God extends chesed to us, us and expects us then to extend chesed to others, right? And this is that second commandment. We love God and we love each other. So in the same way, and this, this is like what John is talking about in 1 John, right? We we feel God's love and that makes us into loving beings that love him. But the natural outcome then is that we love each other the way God loves all those around us. And and that's what this whole chesed business is. He, he gives that to us and now we give it to others. And I think, I, I see this as another way of saying that same thing. My guess would be that his his Jewish covenant audience would, would hear it in those terms. Like, okay, yeah, we understand. You extend chesed to us. We extend chesed to everyone else. This is how it goes. We 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 always have that mercy and that love. We never give up on that. Uh, that's that's what he's asking us to do. And so, uh, I don't think that's different from what you're saying at all. Uh, I I think right. it just uh, I have my little covenant lenses on. So, uh, but I, no, I, I think, think it's fantastic. it's touching. So yeah, no, I love that covenant lens. I think that would have been very operative for these people. I think that's I think you're exactly right there. And um, that actually segues nicely into maybe the last point that I'll mm-hmm. leave listeners with, which is just about, again, about prayer in general, because um, I, I really believe that Jesus is putting this prayer, that we have it here in the center of this sermon, which is all about this kind of loving kindness, this mercy and grace that interrupts retaliatory circles and logics of reciprocation. I think it's here in the center of that sermon because this is how we practice it. We practice mm-hmm. it with people too. But if we, but um, if we are not practiced on hitting pause in our day over and over, I don't know if we'll be able to hit pause at the moment when someone hits your cheek or takes your eye or your tooth or something. So Mm. um, uh, one more comment on verse six of Matthew six, before we even get into the prayer, Jesus gives instruction for what you do before, before you say these words. Um, And And I actually think it's really important to the prayer. So here's the line in verse six. Jesus says, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And then when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father, which is in secret. And again, if I can make another kind of bold claim, it's that I think that more than anything else is maybe what's at the heart of prayer. That moment when you enter your bedroom and you close the door. I think of that as a kind of symbol of the way that for five minutes, 10 minutes, however long we're praying, we hit pause on our everyday life. We hit pause on all of our routines, all of our identities, and we suspend them for a few minutes so that we can change our relationship to them. So um, I actually think the, the, the term suspension can be really useful here. So if you think about what happens when a student is suspended from school, all of the normal chains of cause and effect are put on hold for a minute. They no longer catch the bus and go to class and eat lunch in the cafeteria and do homework after dinner. Um, it, it just hits pause on all of those things. Or in, in chemistry, if you suspend a molecule in liquid, again, the normal chains of cause and effect are interrupted. That molecule no longer moves freely. It doesn't bump up against other molecules and start chain reactions. It's just, we're hitting pause on all the normal cause and effect chains. Um, 
And I think that prayer also then suspends the normal run of daily life. We are usually wearing a million hats in our life. I am a worker and a parent and a spouse and a friend. And in prayer, I have a chance to just take off those hats for a minute. Prayer is a slice of time where I get to suspend the world. And I think by doing that regularly, then I am trained in an ability to suspend the world whenever I need to. If I train myself to hit pause on my life before I go to bed and after I wake up and every time I sit down for a meal, then I think I'm also being trained to hit pause when a conversation starts to get heated or when, um, when someone says something offensive to me or when I'm treated in a way that feels unfair. These times when then I might be attempted to, re tempted to retaliate or to seek my own interest, I have been trained as a disciple in hitting pause and looking for God and letting his influence flow in a single direction into my life. That's, that I think is what prayer is doing. Um, I think when we practice hitting pause on the normal flow of the world, we are creating gaps through which God's kingdom can break in. And that is our job as disciples. Uh, very good. Through which is his kingdom and his power, his will can, can flow into us and then from us out. So that's, that's wonderful stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very I good. think that is that is the logic of you said that really nicely. His kingdom breaks in and flows through us out. I think that is the entire purpose and structure of the Lord's Prayer. Well, that's wonderful, yeah. and that I mean that works really well with that uh, last line, right? Where uh, he says, uh, "Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever." Uh, for yeah, forever. I, I wanted to say forever and ever, Amen. But that's a different song, anyway. But uh, uh, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I mean, how, how it ends like it begins, right? This yeah. idea, it's it's your glory, it's your kingdom, uh, and uh, I like that idea you've given us of it of it flowing uh, from there uh, through us to everyone. Uh, that's that's beautiful and and powerful. Uh, well, any, anything else you'd like to talk about in terms of of prayer? Or? No, that's what I have for you. I mean, well, it's in in our time constraints, right? Right. We, you right. Give me. Three days, and we could go deep, but uh, <laughs> this is this is a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, I I agree, and and maybe I'll just uh, maybe I'll just add a little bit of my own uh, recent personal experience, if it's all right. That um, yeah, we just uh, and I've I don't want to I don't like to get too uh, personal, but uh, I've mentioned a little bit lately that uh, we have a child who's having some medical and other challenges, and uh, and it's caused me to pray more than normal. Like I think I've always been a prayerful person, uh, but I've prayed a lot more than normal lately, trying to figure out how to help and what we should do and asking for help beyond what anyone can accept God can give and so on. So that like I, every time I get in my car, I'm praying every time I have and just praying a lot more. And I, I'll tell you, uh, besides that, I, I, I believe we're seeing small miracles for my daughter, not the big miracles we're hoping for yet, but small miracles, but um, it's had an effect on me. Uh, yesterday in church, the the priest who was teaching the lesson in our young men's group asked the question, you know, how, how can you improve your worship of God? And uh, and he asked us to share with each other, uh, what have you done lately that's improved your worship? And I had to say, that's that's the biggest thing for me. Like praying more has made my connection with God closer. It's uh, done all the things you've talked about. I feel less of the, even the, this pressure that I'm praying about feels less pressuring uh, I, I feel God uh, working 
uh, in my life to give me the peace that I need, uh, just less of that burden of the world and more of the power of God uh, and a more of a connection with God through that uh, prayer. So I think it's a, a a powerful thing that just since I'm experiencing it, I wanted to to kind of uh, urge everyone to, towards that and, and maybe think of how you can do this even more. And and maybe I'll even ask uh, the, the week that this is airing, we're going to be trying some uh, new phase, new things for my daughter. Maybe I'll even ask everyone if I believe in the power of United Prayer. Maybe we could get a, a few thousand people praying for us. We could use it. But oh. uh, uh, but I, th- th- what you've been teaching us is very real and very powerful, and, and I'm grateful for it. Thank you, Kim. You bet. And I, I will definitely join the the hundreds or thousands praying praying this week. Uh, I, I I love prayer. My experience has been the same as yours. It is, it is the beating heart of my devotional life. I just think there's power in it. There just, there just is. And I think in this sermon, Jesus has shown us a little bit of why. Yeah. Yeah. The connection is real. Well, thank you, Kim. And we, we hope that, uh, Anyone who's heard this, uh, that uh, you, you've been uplifted, edified, and that you're able to strengthen your connection with God through it. And you might think of some others that uh, could use that as well. And you'll you'll share the ideas, uh, if not the, the podcast itself with them. But uh, So thank you to our audience. And, and thank you, Kim. You bet.